0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Speaking of misinformation, we have been subjected to a giant wave of misinformation about China, the Uyghur situation and Wuhan, and also the COVID-19 virus. Today, we have a very special guest, Carl Za, a journalist and a historian, who will join us to talk about the truth, and hopefully we can cut through some of this extreme misinformation. Thanks for finally coming on. Um, It took a while, but it seemed like everyone was asking, when are you going to have Carl on?
1: (laughs) Oh, great, great. That's awesome. Thank you for inviting me to the show, Isha.
0: Oh, absolutely. You're probably the, since you've lived in America, you kind of understand all the ways America kind of misinforms about Asia. So,
1: (laughs) yes, unfortunately, (laughs)
0: So I guess you grew up in the U.S. and then you recently decided to move back to Asia?
1: Yes. So I, um, so I was born and raised in China until I was 13 years old. And I came to U.S., uh, started high school, went to college. I basically, I spent last 29 years in the U.S. And, and it just last year, I decided to... Basically, uh, yeah, basically moved back to Asia. Now I'm based out of Bali, Indonesia. We're also under uh, some kind of a coronavirus lockdown here. Um, that's that's why maybe like sometimes the internet get intermittent because everybody's on the internet nowadays.
0: Oh, yeah, because they're kind of bored.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Okay, so there is so much misinformation and xenophobia. So last year, there was a lot of completely insane rhetoric about the situation in Xinjiang and about the Uyghur.
1: Oh, yes, yes, and, yes, and so, yes.
0: And I think that bled into the early coronavirus information in the U.S. Yes. So let's talk about that first. So can you give us a brief, explanation of what exactly happened in Xinjiang and what the U.S. reported and just those basics.
1: Okay, yeah. So Xinjiang is a... a Sorry, did I
0: pronounce it wrong? Can you teach me how to pronounce it again?
1: (laughs) Okay, it's uh, it's pronounced Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Yeah, the X in Ch- Chinese Pinyin system is pronounced like SH in English. So Xin is actually xin, pronounced Xin. So it's Xinjiang, like like Xi Jinping, right? Oh, okay. X sounds like a SH. Yeah. Okay. So Xinjiang is a north is a huge swath of northwest China, basically the size of Alaska, and it's populated. By many a diverse group of people, uh, right now the demographic uh, breakdown is about 45% Uyghurs uh, who are is these Turkic-speaking Muslim, majority Muslim people, and about 30% Han Chinese. So the, the population distribution is a bit uneven because the Han Chinese tend to live in the cities, and the Uyghur tend to be more rural and uh, rural far- live in the rural farming areas, especially the area in the southern Xinjiang. Because Xinjiang is a huge place. It's divided in half by a huge mountain range, the Tianzan Mountains. The Han Chinese tend to live in the north part of Xinjiang, north of the Xin- uh, Tianzan Mountains. And then on the south side of the uh, Tianzan Mountains is this huge, um, the world's second largest moving sand desert called Taklamakan desert. And on the edge of this desert are, are, are a stream of oasis, oasis towns, which are traditional homes of the Uyghur people. And this area has been contested in history because the, the various Chinese empires would gain control of it and then lose it depending on the, the, the strength of the empire. And then in the 1760s, so around the time when, you know, the the, the 13 colonies in the U.S. have a stirring for independence, 1760s, that's when the, the last Chinese dynasty, the, the Qin dynasty, uh, conquered Xinjiang for the last time. And the demographics has always been a, a bit different because the area of Xinjiang is rather, it's geographically, culturally it's part of Central Asia, right? So it's a bit different from the rest of China. And after, um, so through many rebellions and civil wars, by finally around 1940, uh, it's just a little bit historical perspective. Um, So after 1911, after the, the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty in China was overthrown in Chinese revolution, China kind of, Various pieces of Qing empire kind of broke apart, and various parts of China were ruled by warlords. And Xinjiang was no exception. A group of warlords ruled Xinjiang and there were civil wars and bloody rebellions. Until the 1930s, uh, when the Soviet Union decided to uh, prop up one Chinese warlord, Shen Tai, against the uh, other rebels. And it's uh, around this time that there was uh, the first uh, so-called establishment of the first so-called East Turkestan Republic. And the East Turkestan Republic was established for less than six months because at the time Xinjiang was involved in civil war. And then the East Turkestan Republic ceased to exist because uh, at the time another Chinese Muslim warlord army came from a different part of China, went in Xinjiang and took and basically wiped out this, uh, this, this uh, so-called East Turkestan Republic. And then the Soviet Union propped up uh, another Chinese warlord, Sen Cicai, to take over the whole of Xinjiang until World War II, when the Nazi army rode up to the gates of Moscow. So during the battle for Moscow, the Xinjiang warlord, Census Height, he, he thought the, the time's up for USSR, and he thought, okay, it's time to seek a new backer. And, and this, around the time, you know, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and United States entered World War II, and and U.S. became a backer of the Chinese KMT government under Chiang Kai-shek. So the Xinjiang warlord, Census Zicai, decided to throw his lot with the KMT, with Jiang Kai-shek and basically by purging all the communists from Xinjiang, including Mao's little brother, was a because re- at the time the, the communists had a close um, cooperation uh, with the Xinjiang government because the, for a while, Sen Tai was Stalin's man in Xinjiang. So Chinese communists sent many cadres into Xinjiang to work with under Sen Tai. Uh, but after Sen Tai decided to turn back on USSR, and purge the Chinese communists. That's when Mao's little brother got arrested and executed. And of course, USSR never forgot that. So around after the World War II ended in 1946, Soviet Union then supported another group of uh, Uyghur uh, nationalists from Soviet Central Asia. They launched uh, a successful rebellion called the so some sometimes called the Yili Rebellion because it's based out of the northern Xinjiang in the in the Yili area on the on the border with Kazakhstan, and they quickly took over three districts in northern Xinjiang, and they were on the way to push into the provincial capital when <laughs> this time during at the end of the World War II there was a lot of because the Cold War is beginning. And there was a lot of negotiation back and forth. Stalin was trying to, you know, wing China off from the support of the United States. So a deal was made with Chiang Kai-shek that in return for Chiang kai She's recognizing outer Mongolia to be independent state and also recognizing special Soviet privilege in Manchuria, that Soviet Union will respect China's territorial integrity, so including Xinjiang. So at that time, the really rebellion in northern Xinjiang resulted briefly in what's so-called the Second East Turkestan Republic uh, in the three northern districts of Xinjiang. But, but because of the negotiation between the Soviet government and Jiang Kai-shek's government, the three districts in northern Xinjiang, they gave up the title of East Turkestan Republic and entered into a peace negotiation with the KMT, KMT government in uh, Xinjiang provincial capital, Urumqi. So result was supposedly go to form a coalition government. And also at the time that USSR became aware that the second East Turkestan Republic government uh, formed in the three district in northern Xinjiang, has many um, Islamist elements. So they, they, they also fear that will spread back to Soviet Central Asia. So they supported the communist uh, faction in the second East Turkestan Republic, engineers a, a soft coup to take over that government, they purged the Islamists, and many of them actually fled to the KMT control area and then, then basically joined forces with Chiang Kai-shek. So this is 1946 when Chinese civil war was already in full blown. And by 1949, when the Mao's uh, communist army won the civil war, a negotiation started between the Xinjiang communists and the communist party under Mao that they agreed to integrate into the Chinese Communist Party, and then at, at that time in 1949, Xinjiang was divided. Basically, the the, the three dist- northern district was under control of the rebels who were supported by Soviet Union, uh, with the rest of Xinjiang, including southern Xinjiang, most of the Uyghur areas, were still under control of KMT and you know the a more conservative Islamist element who supported the KMT. So, but with the communist victory the 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 KMT garrison in Xinjiang about 100,000 strong at the time they decide to surrender and defect to the communists with the northern Xinjiang communists also decide to join in the the, the Chinese communist revolution so in the end you know Xinjiang was liberated peacefully and as wrong just this, this is uh, this is how because i i like to bring this historical background, because a lot of uh, reporting in the West all, all, always picked 1949 as the starting point and and saying that how somehow 1949, the, the Mao's communists took over Xinjiang, which is only partially true. Yes, you know, Mao's uh, communist the P- People's Liberation Army entered Xinjiang in 1949. But before that, Xinjiang was always considered part of China and even it was recognized by even by both government at the Xinjiang at the time. And also, you know, the, at the time before the PLA entered Xinjiang, both sides in the, in the Xinjiang civil war decided to basically to, to join the communists. And after that, after 1949, with 100,000 PLA soldiers into Xinjiang and with another 100,000 PM, formerly KMT uh, soldiers who, who surrendered. So Mao ordered these 200,000 men to basically demobilize and becoming uh, soldier farmers. So they were told to demobilize but become farmers. And this was a, f- a formation of the so-called Xinjiang Construction Corps, which play a huge role in Xinjiang just because this also formed the first a significant settlement of the Han Chinese in Xinjiang, because by 1949, during the Qing dynasty, the demographics of Xinjiang was similar to what is it today, with about one-third Han Chinese and and Chinese-speaking Muslim in northern Xinjiang, with a two-third of the population being uh, Uyghur and various other Turkic Muslims. But uh, throughout a series of rebellions and wars, and by 1949, the, the Han Chinese population was reduced about to about six to nine percent of the total population. But this would change again under Mao because one one of the things Mao did is ordered the 200,000 strong soldier in Xinjiang to demobilize, and then they uh, had a scheme to find them wives by recruiting from inside China to find wife for these, these soldiers. And then also during the Great Chinese Famine from 1959 to 1963, a lot of uh, Xinjiang is one of the area in China was that was not affected by famine. So there was a lot of famine refugees from the neighboring provinces in Northwest China that rushed to Xinjiang to join their army relatives. And the third great wave of migration was when during cultural revolution Mao sent a lot of educated youth to the countryside and some of them sent them to border regions including Xinjiang so that was actually the largest wave of Han Chinese migration into Xinjiang during cultural revolution I think upwards to a couple million people uh, mostly young people were, were sent to send over and so that altered the demographics in Xinjiang that by 1980s, like by end of Cultural Revolution, Xinjiang was about 45% Uyghur and 40% Han Chinese with the rest 15% made up of Kazakhs and Mongols, Tajiks and Kyrgyz and various other Turkic uh, Muslim people. And Xinjiang is a very diverse demographics but the most of the oasis uh, sedentary farm farming folks, they were kind of uh, were grouped together under this umbrella term Uyghur, and that was that decision was actually done in nineteen twenties in Soviet Union, because at the time it was also in USSR, it was a, a scheme to classify different nationalities, and they decided to give name to all the people in Xinjiang, all the Turkic-speaking Muslims, uh, sedentary Muslims, a name, and they adopted um, uh, the name Uyghur, which was a name of ancient people who founded an ancient empire in Mongolia. But that name has been in disuse since basically the 14th century. So (laughs) they decided to revive that name and to just... Uh, use it as umbrella term to include all the people, all the Turkic-speaking Muslim farmers of Xinjiang, right? So, so, And because in 1940s, uh, 1930s and 1940s, Xinjiang was, in all intents and purposes, was kind of a Soviet satellite state under the Chinese warlord, Sen tsai So Sen tsai adopted the Soviet policy, and that policy continued under the People's Republic of China. So that's how the nationality, the Uyghur, came into being, I mean, it's 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 somewhat artificially constructed, but but you kind of stuck because that that's that's been the the pa- pa- policies of for the past 70, 80 years. Uh, what happened in nineteen eighties was that Deng Xiaoping came to power, and he issued a policy that basically allowed all the. Send down educated youth to return home to the city. So, so many of the Han Chinese that were students that were sent to Xinjiang by Mao, they did return. They did return to to China. And so I was born in China in 1976, and I lived in China through in the entire decades of 80s. And during 80s, the, the ethnic relationship between the Han Chinese and the Uyghurs actually it's fairly good. It's, 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 it, don't take my words for it. Even uh, some of the U.S. so-called uh, Xinjiang specialists, like they also admitted that in the 19, up to early 90s, the, the ethnic relationship in, in Xinjiang was pretty, it's basically harmonious. It's, it's not, it's, there's amicable relationship between Han Chinese and the Uyghurs. But that started to change after 1990. And there were several factors involved in that because... Um, can I ask uh, you
0: one question yeah. about the yes. 1990s? It seems like a separatist faction of Uyghurs from Xinjiang kind of ended up in Bosnia in 1992. Do you want to talk ah, about that?
1: yes, yes. So so, this, so what you actually started even earlier, it started back to the time of the Afghan war. So what happened was in 1970s, China started to construct a road from Xinjiang to Pakistan uh, called the Karakorong Highway. And it, it just finished construction in 1979, right around the time of Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And at the time, you know, under Deng Xiaoping, China actually sided with US in the anti-Soviet camp. So, Dear Lord. so at that time, you know, CIA actually purchased a lot of the Chinese weapons to supply to Afghan Mujahideens because, you know, because the Chinese basically were at the time were making this replica Soviet weapons. So CIA didn't want their weapon to be traced. So they, it's like perfect. They could source a lot of the Chinese made weapons and shipping them through this newly constructed highway linking China and Pakistan. Uh, in Karakorong Highway, and, and from Pakistan supplied them uh, to the Afghan Mujahideens hmm. in the Afghan-Pakistan border. And another side note is that uh, CIA originally tried to supply the Afghan Mujahideens with with mules from Tennessee, and the American mm-hmm. mules couldn't mules? supply like yes, Mules? Like
0: donkeys? Like yeah.
1: donkeys? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, the Tennessee mules couldn't survive in the harsh Afghan climate, so they uh, <laughs> died in mass. So what happened? What ended up happening? Is CIA then uh, went to Xinjiang and bought a whole bunch of mules from Xinjiang to be shipped over to Pakistan to, to supply the Afghan Mujahideens. Um, <laughs> that's just an interesting side note, but not just material, but people also travel on the Karakoram Highway, right? So 1979, that's when China's first starting to opening up to the outside world. And some old young Uyghur men also travel to Pakistan, um, so, you know, to do trade, to study. But some of them ended up in those um, madrasas that was lining up the Afghan-Pakistan border. That, that was finan- funded
0: by the Saudis, Right.
1: Yes, 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 yes. So so Saudis founded a whole series of these madrasas, these uh, religious schools along the Afghan-Pakistan border set up specifically for the Afghan refugees during the Afghan war. And some of the young Uyghur men find their way to those uh, madrasas and they became radicalized. And then, you know, as you talk about, they start to show up in other places like Bosnia, Start to show up in Chechnya, and they start show up in Afghanistan itself, of course. And and then in nineteen ninety, uh, so nineteen ninety one, lot, a lot of things happened. Nineteen ninety, uh, obviously, the collapse of Soviet Union in nineteen ninety two, and that also led to the you know the total collapse of the Afghan government. And and the, basically the mujahideen took the opportunity to take over, to to topple the Afghan government and 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 take over the country. Then start fighting amongst themselves. And around that same time, nineteen ninety, there was um, a, a small group of former Uyghur mujahideens who fought in Afghanistan. They start to come back to come back to Xinjiang, right? So not only they. They went to far-flung places like Bosnia or Chechnya, but they also came back to Xinjiang. And they have a series of cells, underground cells. And so in 19, a lot of things were happening in 1980s and 1990s. In 1980s, China, first China opened its borders, right, to the outside world, uh, both to the former Soviet Republic and and, and and Pakistan, but also China relaxed its religious policy, which uh, you know, d- during Cultural Revolution, a lot of the, all all basically practice of religions were severely limited, you know, like Buddhist temples, Taoist temples, mosques, they were all closed. And and some of the, the, the mullahs were, were locked up. And 1980s, that policy was reversed. So, so mosques were reopened. In fact, m- new mosques were built. But at the same time, you have these uh, these returning from Afghanistan. They're saying, "Oh, wait a minute! These uh, state sponsors, mullahs, imams in the mosque—they're uh, not true Muslims, right? They're supported by the communist government. so they're tainted. They're not—they're not real Muslims. They're not preaching the real Islam. We brought the real Islam from Afghanistan, right? For, straight from our—you know—from our Saudi brothers." It's, it's, it's- a lot of these underground kind of preachings, proselytizing going on, and and there was no. I mean, Xinjiang traditionally was a Muslim majority place, so so people don't necessarily have anything like you know they 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 did not realize these are radicals, basically, right? So they, they 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 kind of saw oh for for a while the religious there hasn't been any like religious life or practice in Xinjiang. Now now it's the, uh, its a re- religion is enjoying a revival, so they, they weren't aware these people from Afghanistan are importing a different breed of Islam into Xinjiang itself. Instead of receiving our rials from Saudi Arabia's government this month, they shipped us mules in Arab. While we figure out where to invade with these gifts, please subscribe to our Substack to support your historians and arms at historically.substack.com there you can listen to our podcasts and sign up for our newsletter once again that's historically.substack.com
0: can i make a quick comment um i i just wanted to uh, i've written an article about this but wahhabism is different than any kind of islam that's practiced anywhere in the world it's yes. only in Saudi Arabia and basically it's in theory or historically it has always been a very marginal type of Islam yeah. that's never been practiced anywhere in the world.
1: Yes I mean in Central Asia uh which Xinjiang is a part uh, you know the, the the most common form of Islam uh, practice is Sufism right And and the Wahhabis who came to Afghanistan, they actually were against the the traditional practices. One of the traditional practices is, uh, of course, to uh, shrine worshiping. There were a lot of uh, uh, shrines of uh, purely of uh, Islamic saints in central asia and then people will go go to the shrines and make offerings and 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 pray and of course it's a uh, the saudi is <laughs> supporting wahhabis who came to these mujahideen who came to afghanistan they say oh no 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 that's that's idol worshiping that's that's uh, that's that's pagan you know they 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 actually start blowing up shrines all over afghanistan and and the neighboring countries as well so i mean these are the kind of the theology that got got filtered through back to Xinjiang and and Xinjiang at the time in 1980s 1990s was a time of great transition uh, one because China was was opening so you know people you know like people who are for pe- people more familiar with the post-Soviet space I mean people were just like kind of embracing the new new freedoms but at the same time you know there was also a lot of uh A lot of other things were going on, you know, prostitution, alcoholism, and drug smuggling. So at the time, there was those underground Wahhabis in Xinjiang. They actually won popular support by banning alcohol, you know, prostitution, uh, drug use. Um, I mean, they use these programs to win popular support. I mean, how who who can be against that, right? Who can be against the like anti-alcohol, anti anti drug use, anti prostitution? But but they they use it to build up their their grassroots support. And and, and initially, people just thought, okay, they're these uh, upright religious people. But soon, once they, they have enough support they started to implement other agendas, right? They, the next, next thing you, they started to require, stop asking the, 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 the men in the family to stop their women from going out to work, uh, require the women to wear, wear hijab. Like veiling, you know, since Central Asia, long time ago, yes, there was a traditional veil, uh, veiling, but uh, especially after uh, October Revolution, after Soviet Union, because Xinjiang was also heavily influenced by USSR. I mean, people in Xinjiang hasn't been wearing face veil for like, for like 70 years uh, <clears throat> before, before like ni- before 2000, before late 1990s. But then this returning Mujahideen, they starting to gaining a grassroots support and then. Then once they have they build up enough uh, a popular support, they start to implement other their other Wahhabi agendas. You know, you know.
0: Yep, and they're continuing to get Saudi funding during that time, right?
1: Um. So that is a little bit hazy because Xinjiang is a little bit different from the rest of part of China. Because rest rest part of China, the there are. Chinese Muslim mosques that were getting the overseas funding from the Gulf Arab country, not just Saudi, but also like Qatar and mm-hmm. UAE and, and, and the Kuwait and others. Um, but I'm not sure about Xinjiang though. I, I know in other parts of China it's particularly in Yunnan, uh, there are Chinese Muslim uh, mosques that were receiving funding from the Saudis and that that was only been it's only recently, like last few years, there was a kind of crackdown on the Saudi funding, funding of mosques inside China. In Xinjiang, because it's not official, because these mujahideen's were doing things underground, right? So I'm not sure how there if there's much fun, funding. Because the rest of the China, most of the mosques they were official mosques. They are you know out in the open, and 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 China didn't oppose to like oversee links with gulf arab countries right so that's one one reason why the saudi funding was able to come in, to, in into mosque construction and such and but xinjiang is a little bit different because there's the mosque that the because the the, the official mosque were still not in the hands of these these wahhabis these wahhabis are mostly working underground like setting their their own parallel religious structure um so i'm not sure how the the, that 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 funding is is i'm not sure how important saudi funding is there but definitely saudi influence ideology which they reported back from afghanistan that that's definitely present and then in 1990s you know some uigur jihadists as you mentioned start to show up in places like Bosnia, and then Chechnya after the Chechen war got, got underway. And, and then in Xinjiang itself, there start to be kind of low-level low, low level bombings, assassinations, uh, mostly assassination of uh, local officials or local religious figures seen as uh, being sympathetic to the government. Uh, uh, most famous was uh, the assassination of the, of in Kashgar. Who who is the uh, iman of the most famous mosque in Kashgar? A very influential figure. But they, they assassinated him because they accused him of working too closely with the Chinese government. Uh, so so they 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 killed him. But the, the thing is, 90s is a big there's a big change in China. So like in the 1996, 97 you know, also in preparation for, for Chinese entry into WTO. Uh, there was a whole, you know, China initiated a whole series of privatization program, right? A lot of the state-owned enterprises has been privatized and that uh, impacted Xinjiang because Xinjiang used to be uh, you know, heavily dominated by state uh, enterprise, state-owned enterprise and planned economy. And and the privatization of the economy introduced a lot of things into Xinjiang. One of the things is uh, is the economic disparity. Because what happened is so the Han Chinese in Xinjiang, many of them have ties back in their uh, with other parts of China, and particularly when you know China in the '90s itself was starting to become the manufacturing hub of the world. Like you know, a lot of the manufacturing starting to get off so, offshore to coastal factories in China, in Southern China, right? And the, a lot of the Han Chinese, the, they could, you know, because of their, their language skills, because of their personal connections, they were able to source the goods directly from, from factory in Southern China, you know, to Xinjiang. So they gain a lot of, uh, you know, advantage in the, in the economic liberalization. And then there become a, a big economic disparity be, between ethnicities, between the Han Chinese and the, the Uyghurs. Um, because it, it, for 50, first, first 40, 50 years in Xinjiang, the People's Republic of China pursued kind of the similar policy in in Soviet Union that, you know, the, the Xinjiang is officially a Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region, right? which means, you know, the, the people there are entitled to be educated in their own language, right, which in China was all the way through college. So in Xinjiang, there exists a kind of um, two parallel instruction, educational systems, right? The one educational system for the Uyghurs who are educated entirely Uyghur up through college, you know, in 1990s, there are many Uyghurs still uh, outside of the big city. They still didn't, you know, speak uh, standard Mandarin. They still didn't speak uh, uh, the common tongue that, that would enable them to communicate with the rest of the China. Their traditional ties with Central Asia to the west of the border, you know, to to, to former Soviet Republic, to, to Afghanistan, Pakistan, mm-hmm. etc. But those regions were in turmoil in the 90s. But the, the Han Chinese in Xinjiang, because their connections they were able to profit quite a bit from liberalization. And that economic disparity also introduced friction. On top of that, right, there's, uh, there's uh, those Wahhabi Mujahideens returning from Afghanistan. They kind of leverage this social upheaval to their advantage. People to completely cut themselves off from the Chinese state, right? They say like this, this Chinese uh, state is basically a, a government run by non-believers and people should have nothing to do with it including like banks <laughs> including because you know in china banks are are, are 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 state-owned. so so they should cut cut off their ties with the you know they should not you know go to restaurant owned by the han chinese they should not uh, patronize business uh, run by han chinese and vice versa right they should not welcome Chinese customers and 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 they're basically advocating a kind of a a complete segregation for the Uyghur people and what but in the 90s there's still a little bit kind of low-level assassination campaign and 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 and, uh, uh, terrorist attacks that all flares up occasionally and then in 2000 that's when things start to get serious Especially, the big turning point is a 2009 Urumqi riot, and and so, so, as I mentioned, there were a lot of uh, uh, economic disparity developed in Xinjiang. What Chinese government tried to do is to address the economic disparity, and and because all the jobs were in the south, southern China, in the manufacturing sector, uh, so so the Chinese government in the 19 19- uh, starting in 2000, they started to organize this labor export program, which is now in the news. Now now you get a lot of the news about s- s- the Uyghurs were rounding up to a slave labor. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is actually a program started in early 2000.
0: Hold on one second, though. Um, right before the Olympics, uh, 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 there was like a big terrorist incident in yes. Xinjiang. Right? You want to talk about that?
1: Yes, yes. So actually, this happened like one year after the Olympics because Olympics happened in two thousand and eight. This there,
0: is. Uh, I thought you were talking about the. Kush- oh no no, no no no!
1: Yeah yeah, you're right. You're right. Because even just leading before the Olympics, there was a a planned bombing of an airline. So so there was a the Uyghur couple they they got onto the the flight that was supposed to fly from Urumqi to Beijing and 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 the plan was to to hijack the the plane and and blow it up over the over the Beijing as as the Olympics was going on but that that was you know the, the 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 two were apprehended on the plane so so they actually didn't have, like a 911 style attack didn't happen.
0: I was just wanting to make another comment is that right before the Olympics, um, there was also a big terrorist incident with Tibetan separatists. So,
1: Oh yes, that's two, that's March, 2008. So, so so the Olympics is going to happen. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh,
0: I was just going to say that like, kind of like there was a lot of, um, really strange separatist activities and terrorism happening right before the Olympics in China.
1: Yes. Yes, yes. So, so 2008, so March 2008 also happened to be an anniversary date because there was a, there was a Tibetan uprising in March, 1959, right? So, so March that year would mark an anniversary date of the Tibetan uprising in 1959. And it also happened, the Olympics also happened in that later that year so there was a lot of rumors that were circulating in Lhasa at the time mostly by um kind of returnees from India. you know, Dharmasala yes yes from from India who because at the time when the the Tibetan government exile in Dharmasala also authorized a huge protest in in Tibet itself so so like in March 2008 there was a big riot in Lhasa and and there was I mean, I, I, would, I would just characterize it as a big a nativist riot with, with some ancient provocateurs that were, you know, that were sent over from India to, to stir things up because at the time they were not only attacking Han Chinese in the city, they also burned two Chinese Muslim mosques in the city. And the tension were high because there was the Chinese Muslim in Lhasa planned uh, a, a planned a revenge attack against one of the Tibetan monasteries, but the authorities got wind of that, so they they kind of uh, kind of put a stop to that. So so there was the tension were high, yeah, right around the Olympics, two thousand and eight, and then two thousand. That's when you know then then after that a lot of the surveillance. Uh street streets, uh, cameras, security camera got installed in Lhasa. And that's when, you know, you get all these reports about surveillance, Chinese surveillance state and all that. But the, the Lhasa riot happened first. A lot of the shops were burned and, and, and people were beat, being beaten up just for being, you know, the wrong ethnicity. And then 2009, so, so in 2000, you know, the, the Chinese government's uh, approach... To the the Xinjiang problem, they they think they, they still approach it from kind of the traditional Marxist uh, economics perspective. They think that they can eliminate the soil for terrorism uh, extremism by solving the economic underlying economic problem. So so they thought, okay, what what's how do we do this? Jobs jobs jobs. All the jobs are in southern China, in those factories producing for the world, and whereas most of the Uyghur. Uh, Uyghur families are engaged in subsistence farming, right? So they have this scheme to export labor from Xinjiang to the coastal factory. So so they granted um, special tax exemption for factories in Guangdong who would hire Uyghur workers. And then they will arrange with uh, the, the Xinjiang officials to organize mostly young men and women who to come to work in, in factories in, in, in southern China. And uh, this started a few years uh, in, two, in early 2000, then in 2008, 2009. That's not only the year of Olympics, but also the big recession, right? The Great Recession started with a big mm-hmm. financial crisis. And a lot of the export orders dried up. So, so just as these more Uyghur workers were coming into southern China, a lot of the factories are closing down and, and laying off workers because of the, the international trade was drying up the, the, the export, uh, especially the export sector was getting hit pretty hard. And then there was an incident where so what happened was the, the most of the Uyghur workers were housed in separate dormi- dormitories because the different dietary requirement, they, you know, of course, they most uh, all of them will be provided with halal meals and such. And and so so they were housed in the in a separate part of the factory. And so what happened was this was a Han Chinese woman who went to visit her boyfriend, and she wandered into the wrong dorm. So she she accidentally ended up in dorm of this uh, group of uh, young Uyghur workers who were you know. So she was surprised, and they the, the young Uyghur worker maybe they were playing a prank on her. We don't know. They. They start teasing her, and then she screamed, and she rang outside. But that fact caused a storm of rumors to gather online. Um, some a, a laid off a disgruntled worker who just recently got laid off on the same factories, posted an uh, incendiary post online saying a, a Han Chinese woman was raped. And then as he's saying the authorities is not doing anything because they're trying to cover it up uh, to to avoid, uh, you know, to to cause the ethnic tension. Of course, that that post went viral. I was actually on uh, a Chinese forum. I was in the US, but I, w- I went on a Chinese forum. I saw this like literally unfold on social media space. I saw that post went viral. And several, later, uh, several hours later, there was a large mob gathered outside the Uyghur workers' dormitory. Thousands of these workers, Han Chinese workers, and stormed the Uyghur workers' dormitory, starting a massive brawl. And, and in, the, in, the, in the fight ensued, a young Uyghur man was killed. Uh, and this was a Guang incident. Uh, it happened, I think, in a shoe factory. And the news got back into Xinjiang, right, because it's via social media. And a lot of the people in Xinjiang were very angry. Uh, there was a large in in July 4th, July 5th. There was a large protest gathered in front of the Xinjiang provincial government in Urumqi, demanding the government to, to investigate and to, to arrest the people who were responsible, right? But this is also, this is, uh, uh, keep in mind, in 2009, that's also around the time when social media became big all over the world. And that before 2009, July, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all of them were available in China, freely accessible. And around this time, also a lot of the Uyghur exile uh, group in, back in, in the West, they started funneling a lot of rumors to Urumqi in Xinjiang. And and they what they say was uh they, I mean there's a lot of exaggerations and and a lot happens they said there was a the massacre of Uyghurs in the Guangdong factories. Well, if you read about, uh, I read the Radio Free Asia reports. On radio the- Free
0: Asia is, by the way, a U.S. propaganda radio that's funded by the U.S. in order to kind of create regime change. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, I mean basically, it's it's basically pretty much an offshoot of CIA, and and I remember the one of the founder of Radio Free Asia says, uh, you know, basically all the things that we used to, like have to do it in secret <laughs> in CIA, now we can do it in the open. And and uh, uh, before this incident happened, there was already a lot of Radio Free Asia articles that that's basically against the the labor transfer program mostly you report about uh like religious conservative parents worry about their 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 g- young uh girls will, will be daughters will be corrupted by you know the uh, <laughs> will be corrupted by working far from home you know they will be like they were worried that they they might even marry a Chinese men and not come back and and will not be good Muslims and so there was already a lot of the rumors already and when this incident so when this incident happened uh, and the, I I also saw another post this in Chinese social media itself some Uyghur exile were claiming that it was actually uh, the uh, Uyghur girls were raped in the in the dormitory, and then the, the, there was indiscriminate killing of the Uyghurs. So there was a lot of misinformation. Fear. Yes, a lot of disinformation, a lot of fear, a lot of anger. So everything erupted um, during this protest in Urumqi on July fifth. Uh, a large crowd gathered in front of the provincial government building, but. The government, provincial government building was they they were stopped from being entering the building because a line of police were waiting outside and so instead the crowd turned unable to enter the provincial government building they turned and the, they they went other directions so so at the, this was a rush hour This was an evening rush hour a lot of office workers were were coming home taking especially taking bus um, go and the bus route takes them through the the Uyghur neighborhood of Urumqi, and so the the, the large crowd turned and went back went to the alleys, and then what ended up happening that night was a big mass riot when they the crowd would target any uh, Han Chinese people they encountered, including people on the bus. They would stop the bus and drag people people on the bus and, and beat them, and. By official estimate, over 200 people died, 200 people died and 2000 injured by the official estimate. But this, this was also the time when, when this happened, right in the Western media or much or or other part of the world media, what's reported was there was a genocide against Uyghur happening in Urumqi, where the, 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 yes. Yes, and, and this this actually a lot made a lot of people inside China very angry because they they see what's happening and they see what's been reported about it in the Western media, and you know and also you know there 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 leak videos from the secure, uh, secure, uh, surveillance the uh, the st- s- the street camera footage on YouTube you know people can can Google it what happened on, on July fifth, and
0: I'll include that in the link description.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, it's a very, I mean, this, July 5th is really a watershed moment between the han Uyghur ethnic relations in Xinjiang. Before July 5th, it's mostly, 1980 was good. 1990s, the, the, the ethnic relations start to to be strained because of all the changes, both of the economic liberalization, privatization, and because of the radicals their underground. Uh, but 2000 is when everything blew up. in In 2009, this after after this this ma- ma- aftermath of this riot, you know, it, it became very bad. It became like the two community became very estranged after this I- in 2009. So this was when the Chinese government realized that there was a there was a big problem. There was a big problem in Xinjiang, and they started to crack down on the people who who participated in the riot, who, who, especially the leaders and organizers. And this was when the reports about Xinjiang crackdown started to surface in Western media. You know, first they call it a genocide. I, I think at the time, uh, even the Turkish president, Erdogan, <laughs> called it call it a genocide. Oh, um, God. But yeah, the that's... thing
0: about it is that a lot of people don't realize after nine eleven the US government kind of bombed a few random countries and killed like millions. So China's response is a lot less authoritarian. They didn't kill most of these people. They just took them to jail. So it's kind of like in the West, you can't say anything good about China. But looking at it, it was a lot less authoritarian than bombing people and sending them to Guantanamo Bay or whatever the U.S. did.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, U.S. also, like, there's definitely a concerted camp- informational campaign against China in the West. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, and what China is actually trying to do is it's trying to prevent a Chechnya situation happening in Xinjiang, right? That's, that's a worst scenario for China is to have an outblown civil war, a.k.a. Chechnya. It's soil, and and then in two thousand and nine, um, that's when start Chinese government starting to crack down the st- start to seal the borders of Xinjiang, because previously you know there's a lot of traffic going back and forth you know especially via Pakistan because the, the Afghan border is still closed so but people can go via Pakistan, and and also former Soviet uh, republics and and. Then, uh, you know, China, China government starting to close down these borders. And two, around 2013, 2012, 2013, around the time when the Syrian war started, now there's there seems to be a concerted effort to recruit Uyghurs to go to Syria to fight. But the borders were already closed. In Xinjiang, but a lot of the, Seymour Hersh wrote about the, the rat line to Syria, basically oh, yeah. about.
0: We had Max Blumenthal on a few weeks ago, so he kind of mentioned that um, in that episode. So just go check that out.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. The, uh, so so there, there was a, in the early t- uh, 2012, 2013, there was still close cooperation between United States, uh, government of Turkey, and Saudi Arabia to basically funnel rebels and arms into Syria. And one of the way they did that is to recruit the Uyghur fighters. So Turkish uh, consulate in Southeast Asia, particularly in Malaysia, were granting um, a pa- real Turkish passport to any Uyghurs uh, who turned up in Malaysia asking for it. And at that time, you know, the only Border uh, only Xinjiang's border with the outside world is sealed, the Xinjiang's border with the rest of China is still f- wide open, and you know people can just hop on the Chinese uh, uh, high-speed rail, high-speed rail mm-hmm. system, and like a day later or or half day later, they're they're in the other parts of China, and that so especially in southwestern Chinese province of Yunnan, bordering Myanmar, Laos, Vietnam, that border is still wide open. So a lot of the uh, Uyghur family who've been radicalized and who are fleeing the, the crackdown in the aftermath of 2009 riot, they took the route from you know, the cop on the train, go to Yunnan, and then they from Yunnan, they cross the border into Myanmar or Laos or Vietnam. They find their way through Cambodia, end up in, you know, through Thailand and travel to Malaysia, where they will be granted a Turkish passport by Turkish consulate there. And uh, Turkey actually had a, a secret deal with the Malaysian government at the time. So the Malaysian government would allow the Uyghurs who made into Malaysia basically get flight to Turkey. And once they arrive in Turkey, uh, they're greeted by, you know, jihadist recruiters who encourage them to go on to, to, to Syria. Um, because, because of the place that, you know the the a lot of Uyghur who ended up in Turkey they face a lot of the pro- like um, first of all is the problem with employment right because the the language barrier and and uh, being in a new place a lot of them depend on the government assistance but then all these jihadist recruiters will show up you know promising the moon if they it would just cross the border could go to, go to Syria. And that's how tens of thousands of Uyghurs and their family ended up in northwest Syria fighting for organization like the HTS or formerly uh, Al-Nusra. Which is just uh which ISIS. Is, yeah, yeah. There's there which is like uh, yeah yeah the Al-Nusra and ISIS came from like the same branch. They're they're based, they're they're originally the Al-Qaeda in Syria. <laughs> Right, and then you know uh, uh, Al Nusra and ISIS had a falling out. Yeah, they become enemy, but they all came from the same branch. And so some Uyghur joined ISIS, but majority of them stay with uh with Al Qaeda uh branch, the 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 Al Nusra, and a lot of them settled in northwestern Idlib province of Syria, especially in the town called the Jis Jisar Al Al Shu'ur, that their headquarters. Um, I I saw a, a tweet by. Uh, Arab journalist Jenan. She she actually traveled to the Idlib, and according to her sources, that there were about ten to twenty thousand Uyghur and their families living there, uh, with about five thousand Uyghur fighters fighting for Al Nusra.
0: Okay, In- so around this time, the Syrian government is kind of trying to, I guess, kick them back out and send them back home, right?
1: Well, that that's that, with the Syrian civil war, right? It's it, it's been now it's to what twenty twenty, so it's been going on for eight years. You know, Syrian government has trying to dislodge these foreign jihadists from Idlib for the last past eight years, but but like they're being backed by uh, they have a tons of foreign the the, the, the jihadists have unfortunately have tons of foreign backers, you know, range from United States to Saudi Arabia, to Turkey, all these, all these you name it, like to, to France, to Britain. And right now there's a fallout among, you know, Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia, but there's still, you know, some, somebody's still supplying them arms. And, 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 you know, even the Turkey-Russian peace deal regarding Idlib still basically just a ceasefire. Between on all sides, so so now there's still a lot of those Uyghur families still camped out there in Italy. And the the thing is that a, a series of things that's rarely covered in the Western media, but in other media, for example, so in 2014, right around that time when China became aware, there's a exodus of these radical radicalized Uyghurs going out to Middle East. They start closing the border in southern China as well. Then in 2014, uh, March 2014, a group of Uyghurs were unable to leave uh, China because they, the, the border were closed. They decided to stage their jihad inside China itself. And this was uh, the Kunmin, this was the Kunming train station attack. So eight Uyghurs armed with knives, they went to the Kuomin train station and just stabbed people at random and thirty people died, more injured in, in that in that attack. And and as a result, then the China is asking all the neighboring country to repatriate all the Uyghurs who have been leaving leaving the country. So so, so there were some Uyghurs who who enter into Vietnam. Uh, people can find Find news reporter uh, about this around that time 20, 2014 2013 There was a incident where um, where a group of Uyghurs trying to enter into Vietnam and have a conflict with a border guard and they grabbed the gun of the the Vietnamese border guard and shot a couple of Vietnamese border guards. And then there's a incident where these uh, Uyghur refugees were detained in Cambodia for entering illegally, but United States and, and China wage a, a diplomatic battle to have them, uh, China wants them repatriated but United States want them to go on to a certain country, which is Turkey. And, and then there was also same situation in Thailand. So what happened in Thailand is that, uh, you know, Thailand was kind of caught in between US and, and, and China's pressure. So the Thai government decided to do the Solomon's justice. So they decided all the women and children will go to Turkey and all the men will be repatriated back to China. And, and this resulted in one of the Uyghur separatists uh, staging a, a, a bombing attack in Bangkok. This was 2015, 2015 Bangkok bombing. It was also when the, the Thai police came to arrest him and his co Cohorts, they found a stash of Turkish passport in their home. I mean, that's how this uh, Turkish uh, passport scheme for Uyghurs got exposed. And then around 2017, um, so this will bring us up to to date. So that's when this was a new head of uh, Xinjiang was appointed by the Chinese central government, and Chen Guo, right? He he was a guy who who was sent to Tibet in the aftermath of the Lhasa riot in 2008, which we talk about. And one of his uh, things he, he implemented in Lhasa was a lot of the security cameras on the on the street. So that was done in Xinjiang as well. That's why we get all this report about the, the high surveillance uh, police state in Xinjiang. And another um, policy implemented was to send people into, these re-education camps so now now these re-education camps certainly exist right we don't know the actual numbers like well, the, the numbers-, numbers
0: were totally made up by this guy named adrian zent yes the german yes. white who's a german christian white nationalist who's mis- who who told who said on video that god sent him to destroy china
1: yeah he uh he pre before he became aka xinjiang expert he was ah uh, he, he wrote a book uh, on rock rupture i mean he was a he was a hardcore christian fundamentalist um he, 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 oh, uh, he the, the title of his book i believe was beyond rupture and and so so this this fictional novelist uh writer and suddenly became the the go-to guy for all the Western media. The Western media have had two sources for the numbers of Xinjiang for the so-called one million Uyghurs incarcerating concentration camp. One is Adrian Zenz. The other one is the, the China Human Rights Defender. Um, and human, China Human Rights Defender is one of those front groups uh, in U.S. that's uh, founded United States government. And they based on their estimate based on supposedly on interviews from eight Uyghur villagers from eight Uyghur villages in, in vicinity of Kashgar. And based on what they've been told by the eight people of what happened in those eight villages, they extrapolate the figure. This is, this is from their report. I'm quoting from their own report. They extrapolate the figure to the whole of Xinjiang based on the demographics of Xinjiang. So they just based based on their entire report on the testimonies mostly of eight people.
0: That's like um equivalent of let's say that the Chinese government were to come to the US and ask eight people in Indiana in like one person in say Gary, Indiana, and another person another village in Indiana, yep. how many of your friends have been addicted to heroin?
1: And yes. then like
0: and then saying that um, forty million people in Indiana have died of the opioid crisis, like that's basically yeah. what they did.
1: Yes, yes, and and Adrian Zens provided a more uh, quote-unquote scholarly cover, right? And and his main source is a report from this Uyghur exile group in Turkey, which is also was involved with uh, extremist jihadi network in Syria. The report from the exile group. The exile group itself was intimated in tied with the Uyghur jihadist network in Syria, right? So based on their report, Adrian Zens came up with this one million figure. And even though, even in Adrian Zens report, which I actually read it from from beginning to finish, he said we don't have exact, we don't have the number, but it's not unreasonable to estimate a million Uyghurs have been incarcerated. So in other words. He doesn't know. He 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 he. So he just throw out a figure, one million. That sounds nice, and and that figure has been grow snowballing in U.S. media. And I, as last I heard it was three million, and and I think Pompeo quoted three million. And we all know how trustworthy Pompeo is. And there's definitely a, a, a heightened campaign. I mean, I I have my own reservations about what China. China's method in Xinjiang, right? But to compare that to Nazi concentration camp, as many of are doing in the Western media, media is ridiculous. I mean, that's an insult to the victims of Holocaust. I mean, the, the, the actual actual victims who, who died in the hands of Nazis. I mean, what China is doing at worst could be compared to what happened under cultural revolution, when, when people were sent to re-education camps. Um, but th- what, what China is trying to do is, is, is trying to tackle a, a religious extremism problem, which I don't know. I don't know if their method is correct. Um, I, I have no answers, but it's certainly not the World War II Nazi concentration camp, for sure.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. Like, I would say it's, well, it's kind of funny because Saudi Arabia had some sort of, like, thing. And then the, the New York Times called it terrorist rehab, um and so it seems like there's an effort to spin the same exact thing as uh what china's doing as a concentration camp and then the saudi government is doing is terrorist rehab so yeah
1: yeah. i mean i mean look at what the west is doing right so i mean in terms of the west we have all these all these ISIS uh, recruits from the Western countries, from UK, from France, from Belgium, they go to Iraq and Syria and kill local people, right? And then what do the Western government do? You know, for Western intelligence agency for years have known about these people. They just open. They, they, if they didn't facilitate, they definitely didn't stop them from leaving Europe to go join the, the jihadists in, in, in Syria and Iraq. And now we still have about 70,000 ISIS families who are being detained in the Al-Hol camp in north, north, uh, northeastern Syria. And, and uh, you know, the Western government, of course, refused to take them back in. Uh, or process, instead of, These people are just left there to rot in this middle of the desert uh, you know some of them don 't deserve sympathies let 's be clear but still that 's the western government 's approach they 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 have seventy thousand people right now left to rot in the northeastern Syrian desert where there there has been no outbreak of coronavirus and and these people are expected just to left out there left to die outside the media limelight and and meanwhile they 're highlighting you know what what china terrible thing china is doing so so there, there's definitely a lot of double standard and hypocrisy going on.
0: Exactly. <laughs> uh, mm, that is absolutely right. I mean, I've noticed that basically it doesn't even matter what China does, but in Western media, it's you have to make it seem bad. And that's kind of... So now can we bring that back to the virus? Like
1: Yes. Yes, yes. I mean, I I, I'm old, I, I joke about this on tweet. I said I'm old enough to remember when back in January and February, there was a horrible take when China just announced that they're locking down Wuhan, a city of 11 million people because of coronavirus. There was an article in Atlantic called, this is why democracy can fight virus for effective <laughs> Uh, I mean, like this. So back in January, when when there was the the, the coronavirus outbreak was was known in China, the entire Western media was too busy just trying to pick faults with how China is handling it. Right. A lot of people are calling this draconian, authoritarian. And then two months later, well, in fact, uh, this is I I have like a personal anecdotal story to share. Back in uh, mid, mid-February, mid I actually shared this in tweet. My family back in the United States, my sister, she hosted a, a Super Bowl party in her home. Um, but afterwards, uh, uh, two guests became sick and my uh, m- my oldest niece also came down sick. And then my sister found out that the two guests that got sick at her Super Bowl party had contact with... Uh, another person who regularly traveled back and forth from China. So my sister was freaking out and took my niece to get tested. She, the flu test came back negative And then, then she was uh, initially doctor to tell her, oh, no problem. Just, just tell her to go home and rest and but the by my my niece symptom not getting better so finally at my insistence of my mom who's a nurse and my sister uh, had them give my niece an x-ray it, it turns out my niece had pneumonia so at this point my sister was freaking out she's trying to get my niece to get a coronavirus test this was mid-february about february 16 or 20th or so and she could not for the life of her to get my niece tested. She, she was being put, uh, like, so the doctor says, oh, no, we, we don't have a corona test. We don't perform it at the hospital. You have to contact the county health department. So she contacted the Santa Clara County Health Department. They said, oh, uh, I'm sorry, your daughter does not qualify for coronavirus test because we we have two criterias. A, you have to be recently, travel have recent travel history to Wuhan the epicenter of the coronavirus, or B, she has previous contact with a confirmed coronavirus patient. Or my, like, because th- apparently this happened because, uh, you know, CDC screwed up and the first batch of coronavirus test kit was defective. So because they have a limited supply of test kits, they publish out this really stringent guidelines for who can, can or who cannot get coronavirus. Virus tested so my sister was banging her head against all this bureaucratic red tape and was to no avail like she could not get my my niece tested at all and thankfully you know after several weeks my niece finally went to the stanford children's hospital again they couldn't get her a coronavirus test but they they could runs a series of other tests and they found a trace of a uh, mycoplasma or yeah. uh, mycoplasma in her. So they, they give her the, the antibiotics to treat that. So then my, my niece fever finally receded. I mean, this is, this is United States, you know, supposedly we have the best, you know, the, the health healthcare and, 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 you know, it's, it's, I mean, my sister It's not like she even having health insurance to cover herself and, and my knees, and still like they went through so much trouble just to like to find out what's going on with my knees. i mean and, and this is that, that i when i first posted on tweet i was questioned by a white american expat in in china he said oh how do we know this is not like a, a chinese propaganda story you're pushing I'm like you you're sure asking you're a jackass this is my family you know why would i lie about my family and this was be just like two weeks or a month before the all the news break out in us about people unable to get tested and and, and 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 what a big scandal that became and then instead a few months later now we have white house uh, you know like the, of all the places daily beast published an article about how white house is pushing officials to Blame China for coronavirus outbreak, right? Uh, but of course, you know, Daily Beast' goal is basically assign blame to Trump. But of course, you know, then you have articles about like uh, ridiculous articles about how U.S. Uh, intelligence officials supposedly uh, warned uh, about China uh, about outbreak in China back in November. But the first known case. Of coronavirus didn't happen in China into December, right? What what would U.S. intelligence official would know in November? So I I tweeted about that. I said, "Wait, can somebody tell me how CIA know about coronavirus outbreak in China back in November?" And and it turns out that it was like the I think it was not CIA, it was National uh, Health Intelligence or something. That they they came out with a public re- re- rebuttal saying no. That, that report does not exist. You know, we never put up a report that said we warned about outbreak in China in November. But there's an obvious push in the Western media right now to blame everything on China. Like, even though everybody have like two months of advance warning, you know, back in January 25th, 25, 25, when China locked on a whole city, uh, you know, entire city of Wuhan, 11 million people were under lockdown. It, it, ever since that, for two months there has been nothing but articles in Western media to find faults with China's handling of virus, rather than actually do something in our own countries in U- U.S. of all places to about the outbreak of virus. And now it's back to blame China again. It's totally ridiculous.
0: Exactly, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's like if the U.S. had actually put up mobile hospitals and tested it. Like in Wuhan, the lockdown also meant that China was testing people and there were doctors out there treating people instead of whatever going on here, which is just lockdown and no doctors, yeah. nothing. So
1: I, I think a lot of it, it, it comes down from like the lack of information about China. So so people can just make up all kind of disinfo about China and and. and there, and some of them are are mixing with with facts, and for example, the you know it's true that you know the, the local government in Wuhan was not satisfactory in the early handling of, of the virus. You know' they, they, cause they did have the first reported patient was in December. Of course, back in, in December, they didn't even know it was a new coronavirus. So the, back in December, they still suspected it might be like a SARS coming back. And at the time, so so there's a lot of misinformation about the sequence of the events. So I'd like to go over uh, on the show for you for your audience. So in December, a group of patients was admitted into Wuhan hospital. And then the head of the, the, the department then reported through official channels to, to report about a possible outbreak in Wuhan. And uh, on the next day, the next day on December 30th, Actually, next day on the December thirtieth, that's when it was reported up to official channels about a possible outbreak. And on the on the December thirty first, uh, one of the doctor, one of the eye doctor in in the hospital, Doctor Li Wenliang, who noted about these new patients admitted for respiratory disease, he sent a a, a message to his friend circle in WeChat, uh, just telling his colleagues and friends, say, Hey, you know, we, we got like six to eight people uh, uh, admitted to to a hospital uh, looks like SARS. You know, don't, he said, don't tell anyone, just warn your own friends and family. He specifically said, you know, don't spread this news. Right. But somebody took a screenshot of that and, and posted in social media and that social media went viral. So that's, that's, that's December 31st. And then, uh, you know, Wuhan government, you know, probably for, for, for purpose of covering their own ass they they sent the wuhan police to to the wenliang to 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 ask him about his uh social media post and and he was made to sign kind of self criticism letters saying oh i should not spread public rumors and and uh you know causing panic and such and then in january this happened in, in january first but but few days after uh, january right in china has First of all, Li Wenliang, he's not a, a, a whistleblower per se because he didn't specifically go out to to warn public. He told the, you know his colleagues said, to watch out for your friends and family, but don't spread this. But the the, the news did spread, and and this was actually when when the, the coronavirus thing become a, a national issue. The, the Chinese People's Spring Corps, the the highest organ of Chinese. Uh, Chinese uh, inter- interpreter of Chinese law actually issue a statement, basically reprimanding the Wuhan police, saying, you know, if if these eight people, if eight uh, along with Li Wenyang, there were also seven other people who also posted in their social media. He, but the P- Chinese People's Supreme Court issue a statement, say, if these eight people, uh, right? I mean, they can only be their, their information can only be termed disinformation for uh, this info on a technicality, because they say SARS, and it turns out it's not SARS, it's a new coronavirus. They say, rather than the police making them sign self-criticism letters, if we had paid attention to what they actually said, this, we probably would be able to save more lives. So, so it was a public reprimand of the, the Wuhan police for their handling of the situation. This, this was published throughout China, you know, like Dr. Li Wenyang's case was, was known throughout China and and you know dr lee actually has sympathy of a lot of the, the the chinese netizens and but in december they really didn't know even december 30th they didn't know what kind of uh virus this is they just know it's a viral outbreak they thought they thought it was a possible SARS outbreak it's only in early january they realized no this is a a brand new coronavirus they're facing and then in, uh, and then China also didn't know about the human-to-human transmission early up. That's why the Dr. Li Wenliang, who originally, who was billed as a whistleblower, he actually said in his own social media posting that, you know, because we didn't know it was a human-to-human transmission, so I did not wear masks or gloves in the hospital. And Dr. Li Wenliang ended up contracting coronavirus and he died, died from it. And and so, so that's why in January 14, the WHO said in, in a tweet, it said, based on preliminary findings, we do not know about, we do not, we cannot establish yet of a human to human transmission, right? But next day in January 15, China started to warn about human to human transmission. I mean, you can still find a, I think it's SNBC or ABC article quoting Reuters or AP, uh, no, it's, it's AP, it's an AP article, Associated Press, said China warns about human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus. And just recently, New York Times published a, a, a ridiculous piece about how China's delayed six crucial days in warning about the war, about coronavirus. It, it says that that China didn't warn the world until January 20th, right? And that's also that's New York Times quoting AP, Associated Press. This is the same Associated Press who published an article in January 15th, says China warned about human to human trans transmission, and now back in April 15th, Associated Press come with another article says, oh, a bombshell finding that China knew in in, in January 14th, but they didn't warn the world until January 20th. That's crucial six days, you know, could make a Uh, um, a world difference it's like you gotta be kidding me Associated press like what i i I made a joke about it when i tweeted about it i I tweeted the article from associate press on january 15th when they said china warned the world about coronavirus human to human trans uh to human transmission to the april 15th AP article about how china delayed the the six crucial days from january fifteenth, january 14th to january 20th i said what happened to associate press i mean between in three months uh, of course we, we know what happened in three months in that three months is that the, the, the pandemic has caused a huge havoc in western countries like united states and europe and now all the western government is seeking to to blame on china
0: but um italy actually got doctors from china to come and help right and it's kind of funny yes. because I, I i remember seeing i think it's the italian communist party but i'm not a hundred percent sure where they like went, I believe this was in, was this in Padova, where they took down the flag of the EU and put the yes. Chinese flag up?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, I saw that and I posted it on, on my Twitter. Um Yeah, it's, uh there's, there's so many disinformation out there. I mean, like, I I even see uh someone reply to my tweets. So some guys say, oh, haha, when, the, when I saw the the EU flag coming down. But why the hell are they thanking China, right? It's like, and people are trying to say, oh, you know, because the virus originated in China, you know, so so it's China's fault. It's like blaming, how do you blame a pandemic or like a, like a virus outbreak, right? I mean, unless you believe some of this more idiotic and crazy conspiracy theory coming out of Washington now, now they're trying to blame it on a, on a leak from the Wuhan Weapon Biolab, right? What? And, there is- yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's now like, now, this was a fringe theory uh, a couple months ago, but now I see people, m- m- mainstream media people to retweeting this. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, like like people are, are first is Fox News, okay? But we're not surprised about Fox News, but even more mainstream people are retweeting. I'm like, you this is this just go, going crazier and crazier. I mean, I mean, like you look at the Joe Biden's uh, attack ads against Trump. Now both Trump, Trump is trying to blame Biden uh, for, for going soft on China. And then Biden is trying to blame Trump for going soft on China. So both the Democrats and Republicans are, are trying to be uh, outdo each other, in, in, like tougher against China. And And, and when this is, a problem that they could have prevented in the united states by simply just get more testing get more people i mean like there was so much complacency about the coronavirus in the first two months i remember when i first posted a story about my sister and my niece and there were people responding like oh yeah the the odds of getting coronavirus is like it's slimmer than, than winning you have better chance of winning the lottery blah 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 and, and at that time I was really angry because you know I'm talking about something happened to my family but it's only a few months later everything changed now now, now it's like china 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 it's all, all china's fault
0: yeah it's, it's it's ridiculous it's kind of like how they did the whole russia gate for a year and now they're i don't know switching to china gate and ah it's kind of like what yeah it's,
1: oh, there, it's, there it's basically us
0: have... regime change propaganda that they yeah. always do
1: there, there are people who haven't even given up on Russian Gate because I saw another article recently. Oh, said, yeah. I,
0: well, oh. Chinese using Russian disinformation tactics. Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
0: That was from the New York Times. They said, uh, yeah, it was like Chinese are now a And so, how did that? That was just bizarre.
1: And and also, of course, they quoted anonymous uh, anonymous U.S. intelligence official. It's always anonymous U.S. intelligence official. And they also said, oh, we cannot reveal the details of how we know because that will jeopardize our operation. Of course. Of course. It's always trust us, right? It's exactly. Always-
0: like Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. or This is, I mean, <laughs> it seems like... The newspapers in Washington, in America in general, especially the ones in Washington and New York, are way more likely to just like kind of, okay, a few months ago, I'll I'll send you this article from the New York Times. Basically, they tried to impute a sinister motive to China building like an airport near a beach town in Cambodia. And I'm like, yeah, it's Uh, a beach, yeah. So that's all I see is like that breathless
1: the dead trap the dead trap diplomacy. Uh, 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 how how the 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 Chinese uh, build and road initiative to build infrastructure around the world is some some kind of a uh, Chinese uh, imperialism uh, neo colonialism to impose posts on the world via dead trap dip- diplomacy is to ensnare country into Chinese debt. To, to, to have leverage over them. So that, that's the dominant narrative right now. And, and, and uh, I, I don't know what to say because, uh, you know, and, and there's another, the, the, the corollary is that is, you know, China is colonizing Africa because China has this one military base in Djibouti. You know the, whereas but that US... whereas
0: because the U.S. No, I I believe the reason why China has it is because the the president wanted to kick out the U.S. military base and the U.S. wouldn't leave until they got scared with China.
1: There, there was um. So there was a logistic base for for the Chinese, uh for the Chinese Navy who who doing the anti piracy patrols around the around the coast of Somalia. So they're actually. In, in Djibouti, there were actually seven different foreign bases, you know, including U- U.S., uh, France, Italy, and Japan. Even Japan has a base in Djibouti. But, of course, you know, like nobody bothered to talk about that. That You know, U.S. base in Africa is normal. Uh, I mean, U.S. have a base in every country. Uh, US, U.S. have so-called the lily pad strategy in Africa where they send uh, uh, um, some personnels and, and small base and they, they literally have these lily pads in every single country in Africa. And, and and of course China has this one overseas military base in Djibouti. That's that means China is colonizing Africa. I mean I mean like like people kinda of turning this colonialism definition on its head, you know, like like the last you know, when I was growing up, I thought <laughs> colonialism means gunboat diplomacy. Means you know, you know, when the when the British Empire used to sail the gunboats down the coast of a country and and bombarding them and forcing them to acknowledge the empire. You know, I last time I checked, you know, China has not, you know, is not holding holding a gun to anybody's head to buy their their products. But what do I know?
0: Exactly. Um. Well. Thank you so much for coming on you. But for people who want to learn more about Asia, um, you have a new podcast. Do you want to talk up quickly plug that?
1: Yes. Uh, so I do have a podcast called the Silk and Steel Podcast. Uh, you can just Google it. Um,
0: I'll put a link here, Dory.
1: Yeah, that would be great. And, and where I talk about everything related to China, its history, culture, current events, and uh, also oh, the area in, in greater uh, Asia as well, because one of my uh, uh, interests has always been the ancient Silk Road and all the, the interconnectivities between the countries on the Silk Road. And uh, I'm trying to, right now, I'm trying to do a balance between like 50% history, 50% current events. And, uh, you know, I am welcome everybody to check it out, offer any, any co- uh, constructive criticism, feedback, greatly appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's an awesome uh, podcast. Like, I learned so much about the history of Hong Kong. I learned about a lot. So I, yeah, please, like, listen to it. And thank you so much. Like, we've had a, like, it's been a hard because you are 12 hours ahead. But I'm so glad we got you around.
1: Oh, oh, my God. You, it's so late over there now, huh? Because right now it's o- almost a uh, new our time.
0: It's almost midnight here, but it's okay. I'm, we're both night people, so um, I'm so glad because, like I said, I had about... I don't know if you saw Twitter this week and when three people asked me, when are you guys having Carl on?
1: <laughs> oh, actually, I saw one of them, I think. I, saw, I did saw one of them because they, they tagged me on it. Yes.
0: Okay, cool. So uh, you're, you're one of the most requested guests. So thank you again and have a great rest of the day.
1: Thank you, Isha. Thank you again for inviting me.
0: Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.